Hi, I'm Tony Karen Brown. And I'm Benedict Evans. Today we're talking about the FTC and Facebook. It feels like this is what we started the year talking about as well. We are, yes. At the beginning of the year, I gave this big presentation in Davos. No, not at Davos, in Davos. And a big part of that theme was regulation and public policy. And we all knew this was coming down the pipe. And now we're starting to get things dropping. So we've had the DOJ um, did this very small and narrow case against Google's search placement um, model. And now the FTC in the US has come up with a big case saying that we have to break up Facebook. And in parallel, a whole bunch of the US states have filed another case that's slightly different, but saying the same thing that we have to unwind the Facebook's acquisition of Instagram Mm. and WhatsApp. And I thought it was interesting to kind of look at those at a high level and think, well, what is going on here and what are they going to achieve? And contrast that with next week, the EU is going to drop. um, You see, I'm down with with all the new terms. They're going to drop the draft (laughs) of the DSA, which is the Digital Services Act, which is a big chunk of regulation of Um, consumer internet companies and I think it's really interesting to look at how sort of orthogonal those are in their approach and their sort of basic philosophy of how you would go about trying to understand these problems and do something about them. It's interesting because you said we kind of knew this was coming the FTC's case against Facebook and yet I got a sense that everyone was quite surprised and shocked when they did announce their filing. Why do you have yeah. a sense of why people were surprised? It feels like we always, we knew this was coming. We did, yeah. And so just to sort of to unpick this. So Facebook obviously bought Instagram in 2010. They bought WhatsApp in 2014. Yeah. There is now a case that says um, Facebook bought those because they were competitive threats and bought those to remove them as competitive threats. Yeah. It used all sorts of bullying tactics with its sort of quite the quasi-market dominance that it had back in 2010 and 2014 to threaten, bully, force those companies to sell and also to squeeze out rivals. And they also sort of selectively turned off access to Facebook data APIs, like accessing the friend graph, again, as a way of squeezing out anything that looks like competition. And they've got all sorts of emails saying that that's what Facebook was trying to do. And in addition, the state's case has this extra argument that says that as Facebook's um, market share and market power increased, it um, leveraged more and more um, private information. And so the less competition it had, the more private data it took because he didn't have the fear that you would leave if they kept taking your private data or using your private data. And so that the the competition is a privacy question, which is an interesting theory. It's a a theory. It's a novel theory, but fine. Um, Yeah. And so there's a bunch of um, things you can kind of say about this. There's first of all, there's two very sort of in the weeds, inside baseball arguments that I see a lot of people making. Um, and I'm going to talk about those briefly, really to say that they don't interest me very, very, me very much. So you can hit the skip forward 30 seconds a couple of times. And so first of all, the first one is um, that this is a do-over. It's double jeopardy because the FTC approved these deals. And the FTC yeah. basically knew everything that they knew know, that they know now. They knew that these were competitive. They knew that Facebook must see them as competitive threats. Um, nothing's actually changed except that Facebook, the FTC has just changed their mind. And I think there's a certain amount of justice in that statement. 
you can argue that the FTC got a whole bunch of internal emails. But frankly, for them to say, oh, we had no idea that Facebook thought Instagram was a competitive threat until we saw this email from Zuck. Like, seriously? That's really the argument you're going for? We were a bunch of dumb fucking idiots in 2010. But hey, we've seen seen the errors of our ways. You can argue that back and forth. You can argue that Instagram was actually a tiny business and it only became as big as it was because it was part of Instagram, because it was part of Facebook. Obviously, yep. you can't argue that for um, WhatsApp. WhatsApp, which had twenty, which was a twenty billion dollar deal and had hundreds of millions of users. Um, but you yep. could argue that for Instagram. Frankly, that doesn't interest me very much because a, this is just an argument amongst lawyers about what this statute and that precedent says, and b we're trying to solve a problem here. And so arguing about the technicalities of what you did before doesn't interest me very the past, much. The yeah. The second technical argument is market definition, which is a bit more interesting. I actually wrote a big piece about this a couple of months ago that a bunch of people in regulation said, yeah. oh, that's a, that's a good piece. And the, the basis of market definition is who do we compete with? Because... Um, the company that's being sued will always try and draw the definition as broadly as possible, and the company and the people who are suing them will always try and draw it as narrowly as possible. So, um, you know, if you are um, Ferrari, then you will say, but we compete with luxury travel, and we compete with art dealers, and we compete with all sorts of ways people might spend 200 grand. And the regulator will say, no, the relevant market is red, rear-wheeled, two-seat Italian sports cars with horse logos. So one company won't, you know, you're, and, and the end, very often, of course, you define the answer by picking your market definition. So once the EU said that the market for Microsoft Windows was commercial operating systems for Intel based PCs, then Microsoft didn't get to say that we compete with Linux or Mac because they just ruled that out of court. Conversely, at the other extreme, the EU has said that Google has a monopoly on Android app stores. So you've ruled out and you've, you've, so you've just said, yeah, but we're not going to talk about iOS, even though like that's probably double the market value. Um, And so you have to kind of poke away at this to work out, well, which problem is it that we're trying to solve here? And I think there's two statements one can make before one parks it. The first of these is um, there's a lot of gerrymandering going on in the FTC and the state's argument because they've constructed this argument that iMessage doesn't compete with WhatsApp in the USA Mm where iMessage probably has 10 times more users than WhatsApp. And they seem to be kind of constructing an argument that any third-party social thing doesn't compete at all with Facebook because it's not Facebook, unless Facebook buys it, in which case they bought it because it might have competed with Facebook in the future, and therefore this is anti-competitive. And this reminds me of looking at US congressional districts. Like you are, it's a desperately self-serving way of, way of constructing a market definition. That said, are we really going to die on the hill that Facebook doesn't have market dominance in social in the US? Like, really? I mean, we had this whole conversation around Snapchat. Yes, Facebook yep. didn't squash it, but clearly Facebook has got market dominance in social in the USA. Um, not in person-to-person, one-to-one messaging where Apple won but in a whole bunch of other stuff and very obviously in what you use um, Instagram for. There's actually an interesting sidebar here, I think, which is whether TikTok competes with Instagram. And I, and I would actually argue that Instagram is about people you choose to follow and mostly people you know, whereas TikTok is about people you don't know. It's a completely different graph and it's a recommendation-based graph, not a people-you've-met-based graph. Yeah. And so actually, that's why I think Facebook bolting reels into Instagram doesn't make any sense, because I think it's a completely different product. 
And so I would suggest that TikTok actually competes with YouTube. It doesn't compete with, um, and maybe Snapchat store, maybe Snapchat Discover, which is a third party content in yeah. Snapchat. I don't think it competes with Instagram. But anyway, you're, again, you're cutting to the high level, like the regulator decides the market definition. Are we really going to die on the hill that Facebook doesn't have market dominance in social in the USA? Come on. And it's so inter- park both of those. Sorry. No, no, I was just going to say that, that the whole piece around TikTok, it's the first time that I'd heard people use the sentence personal social networking of, again, trying to define the market of, yeah, this is why TikTok wasn't mentioned, even though it has, what, 800 million users. And I like mm. the analogy or the analogy, the comparison that actually TikTok is competing with YouTube, because I think you're spot on there in the sense that it's not about friends and families and it's not about communicating with the people that you know and want to share this. It's about actually discovering a whole it's a topical. It's about discovering people who like the same topics as you or who like the same yeah. themes and ideas. I mean, there's an interesting thing in the state's document where they set out very carefully social networks outside America don't count where they're trying to rule. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to stop Facebook from talking about WeChat, for example. Yeah. The trouble is WhatsApp is, doesn't have any users in America. It only it's has users outside yeah. America. So you've kind of you've just defined yourself out of your own argument with that one. But again, again, like, who cares? This is the playing field. The playing yeah, field is, is they're going to set designed. this definition. The court is going to argue about it a little bit, but I would, come on, we're not going to die on the hill that Facebook doesn't have market dominance in social in the USA. I feel and like so we that point right now. Yeah, it's like saying, did, did Microsoft have market dominance in PC operating systems in 2000? Yes. Yeah. Yes, there was Linux. Yes, they were terrified of Linux. Yes, there was a Mac, but come on, Windows had market dominance. What's the difference between the Google antitrust suit that we had um, that was very narrow and specific in scope and this suit that we're looking this lawsuit that we're looking at now that you I think you've also argued it's pretty narrow mm. in scope um, as well. Is there anything any parallels to be drawn there between the two? Yeah, so brief recap, the Google DOJ, I don't know why it's the DOJ and not the FTC, but whatever. Um, the DOJ says that these, there are things that Google is doing to drive Chrome market share. Yeah. and search market share. So they pay and or bully Android OEMs to include Chrome on Android phones. They pay Apple to make Google the default search engine. They make Android OEMs make Google the default search engine. So they're doing a bunch of stuff to reinforce the position of search on mobile, mostly. Some extent in browsers, but particularly on mobile. They're not doing anything about privacy. They're not doing anything about ad tech. They're not talking about Google using Chrome to turn off third-party cookies. They're not talking yep. about Google using Chrome to control what ads you can like. None of the other questions that people have. It's very, very narrowly focused on browser market share. Um, and I really, and it's also very kind of half-baked because they say that you're not allowed to pay um, third-party browsers to be the default search engine, but that's... Yep. Firefox's whole business model. So if they don't do that, Firefox goes away. It's kind of it's, they haven't really like worked out what they're asking for because they want Firefox to have big market share, but they also want it to go out of business. So like, what do you want? So that's the DOJ browser thing. This case, there's a sort of there's some here's, there's some interesting antitrust theory here. And so for a long time, there had been this divergence between the US and the rest of the world in which US competition law had got very narrowly focused on low consumer prices as your objective. Yeah. And the argument was, well, if the prices are cheap, it doesn't matter if there's a monopoly. And whereas European and UK competition law had said, actually, it's actually good for consumers to have a choice, even if that means there's slightly higher prices, because there's, there's other things besides price that might drive your purchasing decision. Like you can have it in more than one color, whatever it is. And so there was this big 
um, uh, essay by someone called Lena Khan, who was a staffer on the Antitrust Congress stuff this summer and has now just been made a law professor. But a couple of years ago, she wrote a, a big piece saying the US antitrust law has done this and Amazon is cheap, but they're a monopoly and maybe they're doing bad stuff. So maybe we need to go beyond just looking at cheap. And so now both the FTC and the states have kind of on board, like grasped that. They've internalized, okay, the fact Facebook is free to consumers. Um, the states thing tries to kind of fudge this by saying, yes, but you're paying with privacy. Um, but really, they've moved on from it's cheap. Yeah. Um, what they haven't done, however, is moved on from it's all about acquisitions and breakups. And more fundamentally, this is an adversarial crime-based system. So they're saying, we're going to find that you broke this particular law, which was written 120 years ago or whenever it was. And then we're going to fine you and or force you to break up these bits of your business and or put you under a regulation that are run by a judge, which is called a consent decree. But it's basically an M&A focused thing and a crime focused process. And so this is why instead of saying Facebook has done these things, and we're going to tell them not to do it. They're saying Facebook has done these things because they bought Instagram and WhatsApp. And so if you look at the, I kind of, I'm looking at this filing and saying, would you have done this? Would you have made this argument that Facebook has squeezed your privacy and turned off third party developer access to data if WhatsApp and Instagram didn't exist? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. Supposing WhatsApp didn't happen, supposing Instagram hadn't happened, supposing they'd happened and failed, supposing they'd happened, gotten bought by Fox, rolled into MySpace and killed. And so Facebook was the only thing. And Facebook would be doing all the same stuff that it's been doing, because of course it would, because it's Facebook. But now there wouldn't be that transaction. So what would you do? Why does it have to be about that transaction? You know, if Instagram was a separate company and it was a huge company and Instagram would be doing all this stuff, because of course they would, because they're a social network. Yeah. So now what would you be doing? And I think this fixation, they managed to break the fixation on free, but they haven't broken the fixation A on A, you have to prove a crime. And we'll come back to that when we talk to the EU. And B, it has to be about M&A and breakups. It could actually be about something else. Now, you see that in the DOJ case, which isn't about M&A. Um, but sure. it's still like this weird mechanism of we have to find this entry point from this transaction as opposed to we're going to decide that we don't like the way this market works and we're going to change it. And we don't have to find that you've broken the law. We're just going to change the law. And that takes us to the EU. Yeah, there's a better way of doing things. Looking at this case um, in the most succinct way possible, it really did feel like this was looking at the past and what has happened and sort of dwelling on how we landed here versus um, the Digital Service Act, which is clearly focused on, okay, we know that this is what the world looks like today. We've seen the behaviours time and time again. What does it look like to protect our consumers in this digital space moving forward? There's a sort of a general and a specific point here. And the general point is we've got this sort of parallel process in the UK and Europe of outcome-based regulation in which you say, this is what we want to achieve and we're going to create some new rules because we think the current structure isn't good and has these problems and so we're going to do something. This is what the European Union does. Yeah, and at its worst, that reminds me a bit of the old army joke that, you know, if it moves, salute it, and if it doesn't move, paint it. And here it's like, if it moves, tax it, and if it doesn't move, subsidise it. And there is this sort of un oh, totally unquestioned presumption that, of course, government should have a role and be writing rules in this because, like, the world yeah. would collapse if you didn't have government writing rules on how everything should work. 
But I think the sort of specific point here is that, so the UK's, comp- a couple of months ago, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, which is a competitive regulator, guess what, we have a competitive regulator, said, yeah. look, online ad tech and search are clearly uncompetitive in that Google and Facebook dominate them. There are clearly structural reasons why it's very hard to create a new search engine or to create a new social network. There are very strong network effects, which I, the last, one of the last pieces I wrote, I described as basically a natural monopoly. And so trying to create a new search engine is trying to like trying to build a new water network. Like it just doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. And so therefore, if you think that they, sh- A, if you think that there are problems with how the social network is running it or how the search engine is running it, and B, just if you think it would be better per a priori if there was more competition, you're going to have to write some rules. One of the answers which comes back to the US approach is to say, well, if Instagram wasn't part of Facebook, then we'd solve X, Y, Z problem. The other answer is to say, no, we're going to write a rule as to how Instagram gets run. And that doesn't make any difference for who who runs it. They're still going to have to follow this rule. And I'm like really, really sceptical about which of the problems would get solved by a breakup. Um, And this will sort of go back a step. Like there's like 10 or 20 different things we worry about here. So we worry about privacy. We worry about Facebook squashing competing social networks. We worry about Google and Facebook um, overcharging advertisers. Yeah. And we worry about harmful content and content moderation and all sorts of things. Now, clearly, if Instagram was a separate company, then advertisers would have more leverage. Clearly, if YouTube was a separate company, then advertisers would have more leverage. But if Instagram was a separate company, that wouldn't have any effect on teenage girls looking at self-harm content on Instagram. Yeah. If YouTube was a separate company, that wouldn't have any effect on the um, prevalence of jihadi content. That's not a competition problem. It's something else. And in addition, if Instagram was a separate company, that wouldn't make it easier to compete with them because the network effects that make it hard to compete with Instagram are part of Instagram. They don't come from it it being owned by Facebook. The same thing with YouTube. Like the reason it's hard to make another YouTube is because YouTube has all the network effects. And if they weren't owned by Google, that wouldn't change. You wouldn't, it wouldn't suddenly become easier to make one. And equally, it wouldn't suddenly become easier to make a new search engine. Like I genuinely heard somebody say the other day that if YouTube was a separate company, the first thing it would do would be make a general purpose web search engine and compete with Google. You're out of your fucking mind. That's like saying that if you'd split Office from Windows, then the first thing the Office team would have done is make another PC operating system. Like, what? And how would that work? Why would that do any better than any of the others? Why would the YouTube search engine do any better than Bing? It wouldn't have any of, this, any of the same data. And so what that gets you to is like, well, if you broke them up, it would change some competitive dynamics, but actually not the ones we care about because we don't really care about YouTube overcharging WPP. Actually, if you're worried about privacy or you're worried about harmful content or you're worried about the way those individual products are run, you're actually going to have to go and change how those products are run, which gets you to um, the CMA proposal, which is, for example, that a search engine has to provide clickstream data to rival search engines. Or it gets you to the UK, the EU DSA Act, which apparently is going to propose, for example, um, legal requirements for content moderation and going to set thresholds for you if you're bigger than a certain size, then there's a code of conduct. And there's a proposal that if you run a two-sided marketplace, then you have to have a right of appeal. So if if you are YouTube or Airbnb or an app store, and you can kick people off and that destroys their livelihood, then you have to have due process and a right of appeal. Now, that's not something that you get to from the Sherman Antitrust Act. It's not a competition question, it's something else. The content, I'm still stuck on the content piece of really thinking about how 
truly it makes no difference who owns these networks, that the content is still going to be there. We need to figure out how we get that, talking about harmful content or extreme extreme content. Sorry, I'm rambling a little bit there, but it, the, the content piece is just fascinating to me because I've never heard it described in that way, that regardless of who owns it or the size of the company that owns it, the content is still there and is still... Yeah, I mean, I think the, I wrote a piece in the summer on sort of, what, well, what would, if you would breaking up big tech work like how would you yeah. break them? What would you do? What would happen if you did that? What, what would you do with it? Well, it's, also, yeah. it's, it's partly that. Like you could, yes, you could split. You know, you could split WhatsApp very easily. You could it, splitting Instagram would be a pain in the ass, but you know, you could do it. You do get completely idiotic proposals, like you should split Google Search from Google Advertising Business, which is like, what on earth are you talking? Like, well, that's not a thing. Um, but the the underlying thing there is that the network effects that make that product strong do not come from the ownership they're internal to the product. That's it. And that's very different from, for example, what Standard Oil was doing, which was they had the oil rig and the oil cars and the pipelines and the refinery and the gas station. And they lock each of those. So if you've got a rival chain of gas stations, you can't buy any gas. And if you've got a rival refinery, you can't get any rail cars. And so you've got these separate unrelated businesses that they're cross-leveraging with each other. Now, yes, you can find examples of Google and Facebook and Amazon and so on doing that, but that's not really why you're using Instagram. You're not using Instagram because Facebook is forcing you to because of this other stuff they own. And therefore, changing the, changing the ownership doesn't change the network effect of that product. And it also so the, it doesn't change the competitive landscape, but it also doesn't change problems that are internal to that product. It doesn't solve the, um, the harmful content question. I mean, you get other sort of strands here where people say, oh, well, it's the ad model. And if, you, if they broke it apart and they wouldn't have the ad model. Well, WhatsApp doesn't have an ad model. WhatsApp has massive problems with harmful content. They have massive problems with rumors in India, for example, and people forming mobs yeah. and killing each other based on rumors on WhatsApp. They don't have advertising. They don't have an algorithm. So stop fucking telling me it's about the business model and it's about the algorithm. And if you didn't have an algorithm, it will go away. You, you, come on. That's where my head was going. Like, isn't it tied to the advertising model? But you're right with the, the WhatsApp piece. And again, I guess the, the WhatsApp piece, when it comes to harmful content, is less discussed because it's obviously harder to it's harder to get your hands on that content, which is not the case in Instagram. It, well, it's also, I think, it's also deeply parochial, I think. So I heard this fantastic story from Facebook that um, Facebook used to be very, fo- was very focused on you have to use your real name. And there were a bunch of people in Syria who didn't want to use their real name for very obvious reasons, and Facebook just blanked them. And then a bunch of drag queens in San Francisco said, no, I want to, have a, I want to use my drag name. And Facebook said no, and there was a huge fuss. And that got Facebook's attention because they live in San Francisco. Amazing. You know, it's a small provincial town, and sometimes it's a very provincial industry. Yeah. But that got you that sense of what is it that's important here. And I think there's a sort of the reason I mentioned it is you could point to Americans thinking it's all about the algorithm and the business model because they've never heard of WhatsApp. I mean, I had never, I, you know, it, yeah, I spent six years in the Valley. I never met anyone who had WhatsApp. In fact, I, I think I met like one person who used Android and that's in the Valley. It was always the thing. You knew when somebody, you knew when your friend left Google because they started sending you iMessages instead of SMS. Most people at Google use iPhones anyway. I like that. Oh, sorry, 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 Google people. Sorry, Android people. But yeah, this you know that you know this is true. So going back, you know this is true. Um, going back, you've to- got the data, guys. You've got better data <laughs> than me. You know, you know what your user base is. You can't argue that. Um, 
So what do you think this, the FTC's lawsuit is going to do? Like, is it going to change anything? Or is it, and to your point with the DSA and the Europeans approach to it, do we need to, are they, basically my question is, are they still useful? Are these kinds of lawsuits still useful? Or should we solely be focusing on new types of regulations? So two answers, maybe. One of them is, uh, this is going to go through court after court and appeal after appeal and ask a lawyer how long it's going to take because that's how it works. The second answer is... Um, I'm trying to think of what's a good example here. Um, let's talk about regulation. One of the things I've talked about in regulation is to compare this with what happened to mobile yeah. roaming yeah. or credit card interchange rates. The EU, there was this time, sort of 15 years ago, that you'd get off the plane, you'd turn your phone on, and you'd suddenly realise you'd spent £100, €100, yep. $100 on data just because your phone had turned on and connected to the network. Because data at home was cheap, but as soon as you roamed, it was £5 a meg. Yeah. And the EU capped those prices and drove them down to basically the same as what you were paying at home. And they did that on the basis that this was uncompetitive because you couldn't choose what network you roamed on to when you arrived. And that was a real stretch. Is that really a competition question? doesn't matter. It's a consumer harm. Yeah. And so you find the mechanism to address the consumer harm. And so you could construct a very sort of cynical argument that says, look, it doesn't really matter. The FTC case is kind of shaky and the market definition is gerrymandering. And, you know, why are they doing it on the basis yeah. of crime rather than changing what you want? That the end result of this is a consent decree that Facebook has to do X and Y and Z. Yeah. Fine. Let's set aside for a moment the fact that today's FTC is demanding a consent decree that says Facebook has to open up data APIs. And two years ago, they got another consent decree that said Facebook has to close down its data APIs. Like maybe they should walk across the hall and talk to the people who worked on that case. Like that was Cambridge. Remember Cambridge Analytica? Yeah. Um, but set, set that aside. There's an argument that says, look, this is just kind of a, you know, the EU has a terrible process and the EU, the US has a terrible process and they're just terrible and good in different ways. And like whatever, like what's the outcome? I think the real outcome here is I'm sceptical about breaking up Instagram. Yeah. But it kind of doesn't matter because how much is actually going to change as a consequence of that? Are these the tomorrow's arguments or last year's arguments or five years ago's arguments? I mean, supposing back in 2000 or 2001, the court had broken apart windows from office. Yeah. How much really would that have changed? I mean, if that had happened in 1990, big deal. In 2000, 2005, in hindsight, was that a big deal? Or was that last year's, five years ago, 10 years ago's argument? And to my point, it seems to make more sense to think about regulate, systemic regulation of content across many companies because supposing the DOJ gets absolutely everything they want, or sorry, the FTC in the States get everything they want, guess what? This doesn't touch TikTok at all, doesn't touch Twitter at all. Yeah. It doesn't touch anything else, doesn't touch the net, doesn't touch Snapchat, doesn't touch Google at all. So you're going to have all this privacy stuff. They're going to, you know, there's going to be a whole wave of privacy proposals on uh, privacy rules for Facebook that don't touch YouTube, don't touch Google. Like, this is not the right way of getting at these problems. If you want a privacy law, if you're worried about privacy, have a privacy law. And then make a list of how that gets applied generally across everybody. Yeah, which is what I liked with the Digital Service Act. It was clearly a sort of a reflection that fines, individual fines on big tech companies don't really seem to work. And there's an opportunity right now to have a look at the the, 
the playing field as a whole and have a look at all the companies playing in that playing field and figure out what are the the, the new rules and regulations that are going to be needed um, across the board versus just, you know, targeting one. We obviously know this is targeting the big tech companies. Um, Mm. But I like this sort of reflection that fines for these companies clearly don't work. Yeah, I mean, I think the... There's a bunch of reasons for that. One of them is that, like, you find people for something they did 10 years ago, and when they were doing it, it. Didn't, they didn't think they had market dominance. Like, they were still, like, a hot, a young new company. They were still terrified yeah. of being overtaken. They weren't sitting there and going, in 10 years' time, someone in Brussels or Washington is going to say you're a monopoly. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're terrified of Google+. Plus. So that's one of it. It's like, the, it's so, the, the enforcement is so disconnected from the original decision that, like, nobody who's actually making those, does there, nobody who's making those decisions understands that in 10 years time they'll be defined as a monopoly i mean they're arguing about it now you know there's people in silicon valley saying what are you talking about facebook isn't a monopoly so just how many people at facebook do you thought that do you think thought they were a monopoly 10 years ago so the deterrent effect is pretty problematic here but it's also that like you haven't written you've got to actually write rules that apply to everyone i mean this is the problem with the the u.s process on tiktok i mean there's two problems one of them is it's been absolute chaos but the the kind of the, the the problem of principle is that it only applies to that one company and it doesn't apply to anybody else. So like the next thing that comes along, like, what are you going to you do? You start all over again. You, you, you actually have to have, like, you have to work out what you want and then you have to work out who that applies to. And it actually has to apply to everybody. It doesn't just apply to this one in this court case. And it's interesting because in this day and age where there's tech companies that are on social networks that are being born every single day, every single week in, in the valley here, there are companies popping up left, right and center. So to that point as well, you can't, take them on a on an individual case by case um yeah i mean you have to you know, the, one of the analogies i often use talking about regulation here is that it's a bit like saying we should regulate cars and yeah. we do regulate cars but that's like 20 different things you know driving license is not the same as emissions controls which is not the same as safety which is not the same as speed limits or drink driving it's not the same as, and you know, the US Department of Transport doesn't set the rates for parking meters in Manhattan. And it doesn't tell you, you know, what to do about teenage boys getting drunk and driving too fast. You know, there are 10 or 15 different questions and they get resolved in different places at different times by different people. The same thing in finance. We regulate the banks, yes, but you wouldn't go to um, Chicago Board of Options and ask them how we should redline mortgages for people of colour or no incomes in Florida. Like that's a different problem. They're going to be like, well, yeah, but why? We don't know. And the same thing in technology. It's twenty different things. It. it feels like we're in a, in, a, in an era where the the regulators have become more mature in their understanding of how complex tech companies are. And I don't mean this in a condescending way or just the thing that you always say that tech companies are now at the center of just about everything that we do in our lives and touch is just about everything. And so the way that we're going to have to <clears throat> sorry, look at them and regulate them is going to involve so many um, so many different components, um, which I think is exciting when we look at where the future of this type of regulation goes in the tech space. Even like the, the question of APIs, like that that question of the APIs is fascinating. Like you can't just call for them to be open or shut. It's just not that easy. It's not that black yeah. and white. And you get these statements like, well, you, you should have ownership of your data. Okay. So if I share a picture with you, whose is it? Yeah. What if it was a picture of both of us? Who, who owns yeah. that? What if I say I want, to, I want to share that with another social network and you don't? Who owns that? You know, so you own your data. Well, yeah, but that doesn't doesn't mean what you think it means. It's not as easy as what you think it means as as, as what you as, as you're saying. 
it brings me back to the conversations in 2017, talking with um, the CNIL, the French Data Privacy Agency, about who who you are allowed to talk to on Twitter and social media. And as a as a French presidential candidate, um, it is not because someone followed you on Twitter that that gives you the right to direct message them um, with campaigning collateral, um, which was fascinating. And you had to redefine what that meant and who had the right to be communicating with who and on what platforms. Yes. It's come back. In a funny way, this comes back to market definition. Yeah. You get the, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by this phrase, selling your data. Yeah. Because when you say Facebook sells our data, first of all, it's not true in any, uh, in any sense except kind of pure abuse of language. Yeah. The whole point is that they have your data and they don't, they don't sell it. Um, but what you're trying to do in creating phrases like that is trying to define, to channel the argument. It's a little bit like the American thing of are you pro-life or pro-choice? which nobody's, nobody is against choice and nobody is against life. And so what you're doing is trying to choose a definition in order to determine the outcome of the argument. I'm sure there's a term for this in rhetoric, yeah. um, where defining the question is, is answering the question instead of actually arguing about it. Do you want people to sell Facebook to sell your data? No. Of course not. Yes, but they don't sell your data. They do targeted advertising. So let's talk about that. Do we want, does Facebook have a monopoly on Facebook? Yes. Okay, but is that a useful conversation? No, let's try and try to work out, well, what is it that we want them to do with that and how are we going to solve that problem? Um, and to the point about, you know, yeah. as you said, like this, is, this stuff has become systemically important to everything. It has, but it's happened like really quickly. Yeah. I mean, it took like close to a century to, for seatbelts to become compulsory. Oh, that's so true. How long did it take? How long did it take to have emissions controls? How long did it take to ban leaded petrol? All of those things took time because, you know, it happened slowly and we had time to work it out. Whereas this stuff has gone from being kind of interesting and exciting, but not very important, to being a central part of everyone's life, like really, really, really fast. Like less than a decade. And yeah. so, and so you're going to have you're having to regulate stuff that you didn't grow up with and don't have like an instinctive understanding of, and also try and work out well what are our mechanisms for doing this. You know, is that the financial regulator? Is that the car regulator? Is that the digital regulator? Is it the FCC? Is it the FTC? Is it the EU? Which part of the EU? What does the privacy regulator say? I mean, the thing we haven't talked about at all, which I'll just touch on briefly, is that. The there's been this fight in Brussels in the last couple of weeks, which is that the European privacy law de facto. So there is a, a set of automated tools that social networks use to scan all images against a database of known images of child porn, yeah. um, automated system. Um, and the EU privacy law that comes into effect in about 10 days time bans that. And it wasn't meant to ban it. It yeah. just does ban it. And the EU Commission had said, well, we're going to create a waiver to allow it and to continue, because obviously we want to be able to do yeah. that. And the EU privacy regulator said, no, you can't just have a waiver. You know, you've passed a law that says this is illegal. You can't then just kind of write a memo on a post-it note that says, oh, except for that, you're going to have to do some more process and paperwork. And at the moment, it seems to be mostly process and paperwork yeah. because everyone actually Agrees. understands that scanning... Yeah. Scanning your messages in an automated system for does this contain a child, child porn is not actually an invasion of privacy, um, except that they wrote a law that said it was. And so now they're kind of grappling. And that's just that's such an interesting case of, you know, this is not always as straightforward as you think. You can write a law that says Facebook can't scan your messages. Okay, let's talk about what that means. I was at an event last week where I heard a philosophy professor say we should ban all targeted advertising, all of it. And I said, okay, you've just put the New York Times out of business. And the professor said, no, because here's this piece saying that GDPR doesn't affect the New York Times because they're not using third-party cookies. 
Yes, that's because they're using first-party cookies. They're using their own data about everything that you've looked at. So they are collecting your data and doing targeted advertising. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, this stuff is hard. It, this stuff is hard, and and I think it goes back to the, the discussion that we had right at the beginning of this chat of the the broad versus narrow scope of things, and there isn't really a right or wrong way of looking at it. Um, it both has to be narrow in scope, and it both has to be broad in scope um, to try and solve it this. Does. I think the only certainty is that when we come back in five years' time, ten percent of people who work at Google will work in compliance. I started my career in investment banking. We had 800 people. We had one compliance person. It was like a cushy retirement job. Yeah. You know, that company now would probably have 50 compliance people, maybe 100 compliance people. That's what. That's the future of yeah. social media. You can have a lot of compliance people. Get used to it. 